Yay, we're live. <laughs> Hi, Amber. Awesome. Thank you so much again for joining Venture with Grace today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. I feel like you're an icon. You um, So basically, to go give the audience a little bit of your background, you started the console, which was uh, an investing community for a few women who are great operators. And you guys started um, learning about Android investing together. And then fast forward to today, it grew into this like over 100 people. I think it's, I, I definitely think it's like over 100, although on the Forbes article, it says like it's 80, but I wanted to correct. But anyway, so it's like a really big community of angel investors, and you also launched your own fund. Um, to start off the show, would you want to give the audience a little bit of your background, and then we can go into yeah. the other topic? Yeah, absolutely. So I went full-time on the council fund about a year and a half ago. And prior to that, I was a full-time operator for about a decade. Um, started my career in pharmaceutical manufacturing at Eli Lilly. And then um, I had no idea that there was a connection between what I was doing at Eli Lilly and something that was needed done at Apple. So I ended up moving out to the Bay Area um, to work on iPhone and kept working in supply chain like I had at Eli Lilly. Um, and then I kind of wanted to go to smaller and smaller companies. So after that, I joined Snap pre-IPO. Uh, helped them launch Spectacles, stayed through the IPO, and then um, I joined Cruise, wanted to move back to San Francisco after a little stint in LA, um, and was there for uh, about three and a half years as the company grew from like 400 people to 2,500 people. Um, and and then after that, I was at Atmos, a seed stage startup through Series A, um, focused on construction tech. So the themes were I went from Fortune 500 all the way down to seed stage, and I was always in an operations role. Um, kind of working mostly at a tech company, but interfacing with a lot of legacy industries on the back end. So, and then I um, started angel investing right after going through the IPO at Snap um, around the time that I started at Cruise and um, didn't really have a network when I started off. And that's how the angel network came into play. I came into touch with a few other women at great companies who wanted to angel invest outside of their full-time jobs, ran that community for three years, and then ended up falling in love with angel investing and taking my track record from those first 30 investments um, and launching a fund out of it. So not to spoil anything we're going to talk about later, but that's the kind of background. And today I'm a general partner at the Council Fund. Um, we're a $3.7 million pre-seed fund um, designed to be a proof of concept. And we invest at about 50K to 100K into pre-seed companies. Um, and we really invest in the essential economy. So we love software for things we rely on, like healthcare, logistics, manufacturing, construction, et cetera. So, yeah. Amazing. Um, I wonder when you first started, um, like basically when you first started, like in the room with a couple um, other angel investors, um, how did you pick who is in your group? I know they're all operators from like other companies like Airbnb, Lyft, or um, so basically like, I guess, like who do you select as a part of your group? And then how did it evolve into what it is today because I feel like personally I feel like growing a community is extremely hard um, unless everybody have to have something to gain it's really hard to for them to show up every week to do it together uh, I wonder what how did you guys like source the deals were they like YC companies or like how do you kind of get the snowball <laughs> effect going that's such a good question. So in some ways, I think that we were lucky because we weren't really designing for what we are today. Like we, if you asked me back then, hey, you're going to have 160 members in the venture fund in like, like five years from now, I don't know if I would have believed you. Um, and so basically at the start, it just started with who we knew. So I, I guess like operators that um, are kind of midway through their career tend to know other operators at other companies or 
top coworkers around them that they become friends with and they have shared learning on the job and um, they start to talk about these things. And so, but not broadly. So like usually um, maybe you have like another friend at work who's kind of interested in angel investing or um, your friend from another company is interested in angel investing, but you both have interesting experiences. And so at the start, we actually started as an IRL community and there was no intention of scaling it. It was just like, hey, like, um, so I started it with Annabelle Lippincott-Paxoy, who um, had recently been at Open Door and scaled with the company in people ops um, and kind of led that function. And then Courtney Bowie-Lipkin, who was at that time a chief of staff at First Round and is now at Sousa Ventures. Um, and together, like there were probably about 10 women, including us, um, that we all kind of knew personally in some way. Um, and everybody was saying, you know, I've either made my first angel investment and I want to do more of it or I want to get started. Um, and we had a couple people in there that knew what they were doing a little bit more than others. Um, so Susan Kimberlin was one of our founding members. Um, she's been like first LP into a ton of funds and she's invested in probably over a hundred startups at this point. Um, she was early PayPal, early Salesforce. And so she's been doing this for a long time. Um, so we had a couple people in the group like that. Um, Courtney Bowie-Lipkin obviously being at first round, even though she wasn't in an investing role, she was around it all the time. And so we have this nice mix of people that have like operational um, perspective when they look at deals. And then we have people that kind of know what success looks like with a process. Um, and we mix them together, just, you know, kind of like, here are the people we have, what can we all do together if we put our heads together? And so we started bringing deals together and it was just kind of natural that because of where we were sitting in the tech industry at that time, um, a lot of us tended to know, um, you know, our top coworker was leaving and starting a company or someone we went to college with that, you know, had really taken off since we went to college with them was starting a company. And so you got this kind of mix of deals where it was like, we were seeing the insider deals in Silicon Valley. This was like 2019 too. So there were still mm -hmm. like very hype driven rounds all over the place, but we were seeing those. And then we were also seeing these kind of undiscovered deals outside of like the Silicon Valley bubble. And I think that's what made it really special is like we could actually compare those things side by side um, and see where the true value was at. And sometimes we participated in both. So um, and then it grew into what it was today, A, because I fell deeper in love with um, venture in general. and saw the you know potential the angel community could have and Annabelle was super supportive as her and I were kind of co-leading it those first three years and so it was part of, of like us guiding it in that direction um, but then also the pandemic randomly like kind of sped things up from a membership perspective because it forced us to get out of this IRL mentality when it was just like hey let's all meet up once a month, we were like inviting founders to meet us in person. It was very much like doing things that do not scale. Um, but with the pandemic, we could invite founders from anywhere. We had members move out of San Francisco, members join us from out of San Francisco, and it still remained um, reliant on word of mouth. So we didn't even have a website for like the first three years, um, no marketing. And I think because it scaled by word of mouth for those first three years, um, it's got a really strong base now. And then even if we we open up applications online probably like once a quarter and we open those up publicly because we want to be inclusive but we still have kind of a regular rigorous application process um people apply and then they go through like a quick interview with shria um who leads our angel community and that's really designed to kind of keep it the same level of quality as we've had it since the very beginning so um but while opening it up to more people so yeah that's kind of how we scaled some things were unexpected and um and then some things were by design Totally. I want to say hi to the audience. Hi, Adele. Anyway, so going back to what you just said, I wonder, um, selfishly, I want to ask, like, what 
if you're let's say like you know for our podcast like every episode there's like some audience that are interested in learning more about it i wonder like how would you group this group of people if like you are if they're like not in the same area so i think one of the things that you mentioned is like some like you got started at our, our event everybody brings some snacks at someone's office and like now it grew into something a lot bigger right so you kind of created that really curated experience for a local community in san francisco um but i wonder like does it apply onto you know the internet slash like the global community and i wonder like i feel like i've done that like you know in the past i grew like a bunch of my audience into the same like whatsapp group but i feel like it just easily gonna die down like at the beginning i was like doing a lot of like weekly meet up with everybody but i feel like um like people have different interests maybe like everybody here are like interested in angel investing and um, they share the same interests but i feel like it's super hard to get it keep going and then now you mentioned like you started this thing like five years ago it's been going for five years like that's just amazing i wonder like if you're doing like a online community how would you kind of recreate the success of the console again such a good question so um i've thought about this a lot and i think there are kind of two camps and you don't want to be in the middle there's like no man's <laughs> land so um and i've learned some of this the hard way too i think that online communities or just communities in general should either be like super asynchronous and like newsletter only, or it, it should be like um, completely white glove and like a high touch experience. So if you look at angel communities right now, we have a couple that are a little bit more of a high, like white glove experience. So um, there's like Hustle Fund Angel Squad, there's the Council mm -hmm. Angels, which is ours. And then like Vitalize VC has their angel group. Um, all of these, I don't know exactly how theirs work behind the scenes. I know there are differences, like some run SPVs, some don't. Um, and but they all are kind of like, they're running an operation that people are interfacing with on a weekly basis, maybe sometimes mm -hmm. a daily basis. Um, and then there's like people who are just like, you know what, I'm not gonna do that whole thing, that's huge. That's a big undertaking. So I'm just gonna launch a newsletter and like reach thousands of people with that instead. But I think when you try to be in the middle and have something where it's like, I'm just gonna create a space and hope that people come and like share things with them and hope that they share back. Sometimes it doesn't work out. And so we've had seasons at the council where we saw that starting to happen and we had to either pick like, all right, we're either stripping this way down and going newsletter direction or we're stripping it or we're going way up and like getting back to kind of our roots and bringing some of those like nurturing qualities to it. And mm -hmm. so that's where I think um, Shreya who joined in the past uh, like nine months um, has made a huge difference because she brought her experience from other communities like Violet Society and On Deck and really kind of nurtured our community as we were growing and like becoming more of a public community um, or a publicly accessible community. And um, really what that means is like, we've created a source of truth, which is Slack. Like originally we were trying to do like Notion for deal discussion and deal memos, and then like Slack for, you know, discussion outside of pitch meetings, and then Zoom for the pitch meetings. Um, but now it's like, even when we're in Zoom, having a live meeting with members, all the discussion on the deal that we're talking about is happening in Slack. So we don't use Zoom chat for that. We don't use like a Google doc, we're using Slack for that. And then outside of meetings, people go back to those same deals and they wanna talk about it in Slack. And so I think just having something that's like, um, feels a little bit more high touch, like for us, that's offering this live pitch meeting with founders over Zoom once a week where people can actually see deals live, talk about them with each other, take notes together in Slack, 
um, opt into a, a group call later with that founder if they're really interested in learning more. Um, that makes it a little bit of a more high touch experience, but we still picked like one place where, where it was like, if you can't come to the Zoom meeting or if you can't mm -hmm. check your email that we're sending you every Thursday, at least you know the latest stuff and the coolest stuff is going to be in Slack and that's how you engage and upvote deals and discuss them. So I think just like being thoughtful about where are your members at and not having too many places. And then if that is the place, like what other things can you do outside of that to remind people, hey, you're here and this is a part of your um, your daily, like, um, I guess, routine. And so the other thing we do is we've layered on, originally we were an IRL first community that became online. Now we're an online community that pulls in aspects of IRL. So we still have probably 50% of our members in San Francisco. And then the next biggest market is New York and then LA and then cities all over um, the United States. And so um we can't do an event in every single city because sometimes we don't have enough members there but we do do at least one quarterly event in new york and in san francisco so that people can come together socially outside of all these like business focused things that we're doing together mm -hmm. on um, calls and over slack so mm -hmm. um that has made a big difference too because it just kind of reignites the excitement um every time we do that Totally. I, I think like maybe because of your background in operations, so it, you made it sound so easy. I feel like it, there's just like so much work goes into the operational <laughs> side of things. And then um, like, you know, I feel like we like briefly speak about this, like last time we chatted, I feel like what you mentioned about like, there's like maybe as a solo GP or as a fund manager, there's a lot goes into operation and then a lot goes into just managing the fund, raising the fund and everything. And I wonder, like, how do you spend your time on each different sector? And then how do you kind of like scale yourself to a degree? And I wonder, so like I heard I heard about this in your other interview, like when you first started your solo GP fund, you had five or six other GPs that you kind of bounce off ideas with. And I wonder how do you select these people? Because I think um, like, do you select them? They're like investing in the same sector so you can collaborate on deals or do you select them in very different sectors so you don't clash with each other and then you are learning from like a uh, operational standpoint about how they run their fund? Uh, yeah, like I, I have like so many questions about they feel like that for now. Yeah. Um, first of all, on the operation side, it is definitely challenging running like a community alone, like a, a sort of like white glove community like this, where you're, you know, interfacing with people on different channels and IRL and online. It's not easy. And I tried doing it all myself for like six months once and it was a terrible disaster. Um, and so mm -hmm. I that's where like having somebody that can come in and, um, you know, take what you've learned in the first few years of growing something like that and then really run with it and nurture it and take it to the next level makes a huge difference. So Tria has been that for me. Um, and just having somebody I can trust to run with things. Like we have a weekly meeting where we talk about how everything's going on both the fun side and the angel side. I join every single pitch meeting and want to be engaged with the angels. But outside of that, she's running the day-to-day -day operation, which is awesome. And then that frees me up to fo uh, focus on the fund, which is also a crazy job to do as one person. Um, because like you said, there's investing, there's fundraising, and then there's the back office, which is like, a, it's basically like running a small business with legal and tax and finance and all that stuff. Um, and so um, I think designing like the right team around you, which is hard when you're like bootstrapping and just getting off the ground, that's the biggest challenge is figuring out like, how are you going to put scaffolding around yourself? That's um, been important for me. And then um, the other thing is like having like a sounding board, like you said, because I'm a solo, solo GP, 
Um, I've designed a couple of sounding boards for myself. So when it comes to looking at investments, um, if I look at like a healthcare deal, that's very much in our thesis of investing in the essential economy. But, um, you know, healthcare is a whole beast in itself. And there's a lot of regulatory stuff. There's a huge cast of players from patients to providers to employers. Um, and so I want to make sure that I'm, um, you know, fully aware of all the risks I'm taking on if I invest in a healthcare deal. And so I've kind of cherry picked people from our angel community that um, have deep health tech experience and will sometimes bounce deals off of them. Um, and then I, um, the other thing I've done is like, I have a GP group um, with Sydney Thomas from um, Symphonic and a few other people um, where we kind of come together every now and then it's kind of like a, a quarterly thing. It's pretty ad hoc. Um, another one is uh, Suzanne from Zelda Ventures, who just recently launched her fund as well. But um, we'll basically meet together and just talk more about like the running of the venture firm. Like, um, how is everybody managing back office? How is fundraising going? Um, which LPs are actually active in deploying capital right now? Um, and that is really helpful to just have that intel. And for that group, Sydney and I kind of designed it together. Um, and we purposely picked people that were at different sectors, stages, sectors, stages, or check sizes or geographies, because we didn't want them to be too competitive with each other. We wanted people to feel like, hey, I can open up my whole playbook of like fundraising from, from LPs and not feel like I'm competing with someone. Um, and there's a lot of like, I do think there's a lot of um, collaboration even between people that do have similar thesis. But for this group, we wanted to be so open that we were like, let's purposely design it so that no one has that extra friction in just being open with each other. Um, and so that's been really nice for just like firm building sort of um, camaraderie. And we're all solo GPs, so we all need that. Um, and then, yeah, that's that's kind of the two things. Like, you know, I use my angel community and then um, sometimes we'll formalize partnerships with people that are like on a repeated basis, like certain deals, I always go to that person. The other um, group that I rely on a, a little bit is our co-investors So and LPs. So um, one example is Bain Capital Ventures is an LP in the council fund. Um, and because we invest in healthcare and industrials, basically, like if you strip down our thesis of investing in software's third act, which is software for the essential economy, it really is like healthcare, logistics, manufacturing, construction, et cetera. Um, and Bain Capital Ventures actually focuses on B2B software for um, those industrial areas as well and has been for a long time. And so we have that in common, um, but they're more of like a multi-stage firm that starts at seed stage. I'm a small firm that starts at pre-seed. And so sometimes they're seeing deals where um, it's really interesting, but it's too early for them. And they'll kick it to me and say, hey, you should look at this. Sometimes I'm also investing at pre-seed and seeing deals take off and saying, hey, guys, this is coming to it's getting to seed stage or series A. You should really take a close look. And so we, Ziza and I, Ziza really focuses on a lot of industrials um, at Bain. And so we have a monthly call where we just kind of go through like our pipelines, what deals we're excited about in our portfolios and pipelines and where we could potentially make intros for each other. So there's a lot that goes on in terms of collaborating. Um, those are just a few examples, but that's a big part of a GP's job is like relationships across the board, not only with founders, but with co-investors and LPs and everyone like um, trying to make sure you invest in the best deals and then support founders however you best can. So totally. I wonder when you are um, in terms of like, I guess like I have so many questions and I'm like trying to think which one to pick first. So I think this is like I've heard about you talk about like reset. Like I I heard about them and I like I mean obviously I heard great things about them. And then I wonder like 
when you like i know that they select gps uh by like there's like a board of like six lps or something and then they select who to kind of like back um i wonder when you are on the hindsight like what do you think make you and the console phone special that like in the lps eye um what do you think are the factors that they decided to go with the console phone among like i don't know thousands of people who apply assuming yeah, great question. So this is about Recast Capital, and they launched this program called Recast Accelerate. Not Recast, they, sorry, I'm like, yes, my no worries. Brain no worries. Yeah, I'm saying it for anybody listening. Um, but yeah, um, Recast Accelerate basically picks like 30 GPs. Um, they're all from diverse backgrounds. So the first cohort was you had to have like at least 50% of the GPs on your team um, had to be female um, or identify as a woman. And um, it's been a really cool program because like you said, they had six different institutionalized LPs um, kind of be on the selection committee um, that could be like a bank, huge family office, an endowment, et cetera. Um, and so I, so I have, I don't know exactly why they picked me, but just based on feedback that I get from other LPs and why they committed to the council fund, um, my guess is the things that tend to set us apart um, that we get feedback are on our, um, our focus on the essential economy is really interesting because I think there are a lot of general um, B2B SaaS funds that are looking at a lot of horizontal solutions. Um, and that's kind of been like the last era of successful tech companies. It's just been like a lot of horizontal SaaS. Um, and so, and it's been a safe place to invest when consumer is like, you can get huge wins, but they don't come as often. And so everybody kind of figured out, oh, wow, you can get like more wins more often if you do um, horizontal SaaS. And so, that was kind of like the last era and it's still going on. Um, but I think they like this more like vertical approach. And then, but I will say more and more people are getting into this vertical SaaS approach as well. So that's becoming a crowded space. Um, and then um, I think they like my operator background. So I've actually interfaced with a lot of the industries that I'm investing in. So even though I was at mostly tech companies throughout my career, I interfaced with healthcare at Eli Lilly, um, interfaced with supply chain manufacturing and logistics at Eli Lilly, Apple, and Snap. And by interfaced, I mean I was like walking factory floors in China for like 90 days a year. Um, and so I've seen those worlds like from the inside out. Um, and then interface with transportation at Cruise and then construction at Atmos. So it's um, for me, I've like seen a lot of these pain points. I know enough to be dangerous in a lot of these areas. And I know how to speak the language and talk to founders that um, that are building in these areas and serving customers in these areas. Um, because I've had to work with builders myself and um, kind of understand their day to day. So um, that's another thing. And then the third differentiator, I think, is our operator network. So just knowing that we have people in our operator network, um, which would be our angel community from companies like Figma, Slack, Airbnb, Square, uh, Lyft, et cetera. Um, we've just kept that like extremely, we've kept our bar for operators joining the com community very high because we want um, founders to be excited about us potentially introducing them to angel investors or advisors that can come on board in addition to the council fund. And then even post-investment, we just have a lot of people we can make double opt-in intros to. Um, so it's not just me as a solo GP generalist that can help them with you know scaling challenges. It's like, I know functional experts that have built functions at top companies before um, that I can link them up to. So I think that's probably the biggest differentiator of the three that I mentioned. Mm. I wonder, like, in your cohort, assuming, like, I don't know if it's a cohort or they just, like, gave each uh, each fund, like, 100K or something. I wonder if you observe the pattern of each person's, like, specialties. Do you see any common pattern of, like, the companies that are backed by um, 
recast or yeah and then like since you like you know you raised your own fund and then like you probably chatted with like thousands of lps um what was your journey like getting introduced to them or like uh you know getting connected to them or like even finding out about them <laughs> because i feel like a lot of the family offices are like hidden and then i'm aware of like they all know each other kind of thing um i my biggest fear is like I feel like if a fund manager going in and then pitch to one family office and then what if they decided to not invest and then they spread the word of like, this is a terrible, mm. <laughs> what's going to happen to that fund manager if they got canceled Great. by someone? Great question. Um, okay. So I'll start with um, like, if I observe any patterns of funds that they've invested in at, at recast. So um I would say no other than fund size. So all of the funds are sub 50 million. There's a lot of data out there now that shows that funds under 100 million tend to outperform. Um, yet people that have been in venture for a long time tend to have really big funds and they are raising capital faster than the new entrants that are raising smaller funds that are known to outperform. And so um, Recast is all about like, let's get that next cast um, you know, up to the plate and give help them with the economics so they can actually make it work. Um, so I will say, like, I went to the kickoff program in Washington, D.C., um, just to meet everybody else in the cohort. Um, and it was just I think the one thing they had in common, not to like toot my own horn. This is more about them than me. But like every single person I talked to was so impressive, just their background. Like they have probably three times the credibility that they need to have in order to be running a fund and fundraising. And so that was just cool to see. Like a lot of them are like, you know, I've been an incredible operator or I'm spinning out of a, a bigger VC or I've been angel investing for like six years and like hit these win incredible winners throughout my journey. Um, and it was, it was definitely felt like um, a step above like general population emerging managers um, in terms of like level of experience going in. Um, and then, but the, the theses are all over the place, which I think is great because recast is really, you know, supporting people in all different verticals. So there's some impact focused funds. There were some like food tech focused funds, couple supply chain specific funds. Um, mine, which is like, you know, we touch multiple verticals, but we're very thesis driven around the essential economy. Um, and they had some that were targeting more institutional LPs, some that were targeting more family offices and high net worth individuals, but everyone was under 50 million. So and most are raising fund one, um, and a few are like crossing the chasm to start raising fund two, including myself. So um, those are kind of like the themes of the group. And then um, my journey in getting to know LPs in general has been, I mean, I don't even know how to describe it other than like crazy and just like, it, it looks like a really a winding path. Um, so I was lucky when I first launched my fund, I decided to go with a small fund because I, know, I knew like, I don't even know one family office. I don't even know how to find them. I don't know how to really relate with them. Um, and so it's going to take time to break into that tier. And that was interesting. I'm glad I realized that early on because um, a lot of people will give you this advice when you decide to launch a fund, like, oh, it has to be all family offices. You have to like get family offices on board. Um, so for whatever reason, when I started raising my fund, that was like the advice that everybody was being given. Um, and I quickly realized like, hey, this is going to be really hard to find them, get introductions to them. And when once you do, they want to get to know you for a really long time, like it might be 18 months. And so um, they're not going to just like have a great conversation and decide to invest right there. So I decided to like play to my strengths, which is that I had already built an angel community um, of people with capital that want exposure to startups and um, and they like they know my network and they know my track record. And um, there's a lot of trust already there. And so 
um, I started with that angel community, which at that time was about 50 members when I decided to start launching a council fund. Now it's 160. Um, but I would say like half of them came in as LPs right out of the gate. We did like one big launch um, activity and pitch to the angels and, um, you know, asked them to jump on board for our first close and they did it. And so that was just incredible to feel that support of that community that I had been nurturing for like three years. Um, and they were really, really excited to be a part of it. And that actually allowed me to like do my first close and then go out and invest in like the first 10 companies and then come back to market. Um, and throughout that time, people also saw what I was doing in my quarterly updates and conversations with me and they felt more comfortable making introductions to people that they knew um, that they may not have disclosed early on when they came into my first close. So some people were like, oh, I actually do know somebody at Bain Capital Ventures, could I introduce you to Ziza? And now they've invested uh, many, many months later. Um, and so um, those things just happen naturally over time. So I would start with the network you have. And if you don't have a network, I would start building a community and um, and just view it as a long-term journey. Like it's things are not gonna happen overnight um it's just like impossible to go out there and be like i have no connections i'm an outsider and i'm gonna close like millions of dollars it can happen but it's just it's very hard especially um you know as an under underrepresented person as a solo gp as somebody coming as an in as an operator like there are a lot of things that made me different um and so i really wanted to lean on what i knew and i was lucky that i already had that angel community brewing for a while so um, but yeah, toward the end, it was like people introduce you to other individuals and some of those individuals introduce you to family offices. And then some of the individuals introduce you to VC funds of funds. And then finally, like you start applying for programs. And when you get into things like recast, um, and there are a few others too, um, it's like you then get to connect with bigger LPs that are at those events and participating in those programs. And they know that you've kind of been pre-vetted by the time you got in, but none of that, like I wouldn't have been accepted into recast probably right out of the gate. Um, personally, I don't think I was ready yet with my pitch and all that and my portfolio from, from fund one. So, um, so yeah, it was, um, definitely a journey. Um, so I would just, I, I focused more on like, how can I create sparks throughout the fundraise that take me through like the next surge and then I'll hit a plateau and then figure out how to like create another spark to, um, bring a bunch of like a new waterfall of LPs in. So Yeah. I wonder, like, um, so I have so many questions there. I, like, wrote down a bunch while you were talking. So one of them is, like, you mentioned um, about quarterly updates. Like, how did you first learn about, like, how to write these things? And um, for people who wants to eventually, like, getting into the game, like, starting their own fund or something, I wonder what's your biggest suggestion? Would you like, would you become LPs of other people's fund and to learn how they're like doing their thing? Or obviously like they could have option to join the console and there's like, what are like the learning process for yourself to learn how this thing works? Because I feel like this is such a black box and like nowadays there's more and more resources like signature blog or like some other like newsletter that are kind of like, um, like, just like covering things that are like was not like really public information but i wonder like how do you educate yourself since you're like one of the pioneers who are in this like solo gp wave yeah that's great so i'll start with quarterly updates so um i um how do i learn to write these things so there were 
the main thing I did was I joined like a boot camp type program right off the bat. And I was really lucky because Afore Capital, which is one of the biggest pre-seed funds in the world, mm-hmm. they um, they hosted this program called Angel to Fund Manager, which I think was a one-time thing, um, but it was a completely free. And then they like vetted and picked um, something like 25 to 30 fund managers. And this was like, before I ever did my first close, it was like, I had just decided I want to start working toward launching a fund. Um, and they brought in like GPs from more established firms or firms that had recently raised a lot of capital. It was kind of like a mix. Like I think there were people from like GP firm Founders Fund. I'm, I might be like saying this wrong, but we had like caffeinated capital, um, Founders Fund and probably like five others that were like firms you would know about. And then there were also, you know, people like, um, you know, that had just launched like a solo GP fund that was really successful and everybody kind of already knew their name. Um, and so we got a really good mix of advice on everything from like how to write a quarterly update to how to fundraise and close LPs to what is LP construction? Like what are all the different types of LPs you could raise from um, to like, how do you, um, you know, run your back office and like, what are the different vendors that you need to use? So it just like kind of went through all the basics. Um, And now there are other, there are other programs like that. I will say that a lot of them are very expensive. So I would just keep an eye out and like ask around about programs. Um, Recast actually has a great enablement program. Um, they don't, that one doesn't give you the 100K, but it goes through all the same curriculum that I went through and it's absolutely incredible. So I would definitely recommend applying to that. Um, and then um, the other thing is I did, so I angel invested in 30 companies before I launched Fund One and had some great successes there. Um, and I also, but that taught me nothing about like what, how do I interact with LPs and launch a fund? Um, and so I did also invest in one venture fund as well, just to see like, how are they doing their reporting and how, do, how are they doing their um, like uh, portfolio construction? Like how many companies are they investing in? I actually ended up picking a completely different portfolio construction <laughs> than them and doing a lot more reporting than they do, but it was still cool to just see it um, and, and kind of determine like, what do I want to take from this? What do I not want to take from this? So, yeah. Mm-hmm. I wonder you touch on like a really interesting topic about like okay so I hear like you know you invest in 30 companies were they like all the same size check or were they by the way I know that you make your matcha from scratch every, every morning I feel like such yeah, a stalker so I feel like yeah <laughs> you do your research <laughs> I like I I have an anxiety attack if I don't go through like everybody's everything You're before amazing. I come out. I feel like I'm I'm such a like a crazy insane person. I feel like I know you for like 75 years, but on the other hand, <laughs> it's, like, it. it's so creepy. I know all these like really small things about people. Um, I wonder, like, okay, so you went through like so basically you invest in 30 companies. Um, I wonder, like, do you write same size check into everything? And I see it, you touch upon like portfolio construction. I feel like there are two school of people I've seen. Like one is like spray and pray. Like I just go with whatever deal I can get into and then put a tiny check in. And then the other school is like high conviction. Like let's go with like, you know, this like five company. And then I just like keep adding things until like the IPO or something. Like not not like IPO. Like nobody, like angel investor, nobody go with like, I don't know, every round. But like I, I wonder like what's your thought process on when you first started like the 30 company and then how did you pick the 30 company and were it like i know you read jason Kalkas and joe book i also like re-listened to it after you said it. <laughs> i feel I'm, I'm such a stalker but anyway so like um so like basically his theory is like you invest like 
five thousand dollar into maybe like fifty company or something. Like I don't remember remember the math specifically. I wonder what's your approach on the thirty company you invest in, and what did you learn from the thirty company you invest in? Yeah, for me, it was about investing speed and wanting to be able to actually get to know the founders、um, and help the ones that wanted the help and wanted to build a relationship because. I knew that I might want to go into venture full time someday, and it would be important to have a, a network of founders that's sending more deals to me. That's kind of like the ultimate deal sourcing channel you could ever get.、Um, and then, you know, good references from the industry. I wanted to make sure that I'm building up a good reputation.、Um, and so, for me, it came down to like how many checks can I actually write a year? Because I was like working full time at Cruise the entire time I was building my angel investing portfolio. So it was like my,、um, you know, side hobby outside of work and. Um, so I had to think about that, and then I ended up writing the same size check into every single company, except for a couple where like the minimum was higher, and I couldn't、uh, negotiate it down further. So、um, I, I did like five thousand dollars into like almost all of the thirty companies. There was one company where there was so much interest that everybody could only put in a thousand dollars, and it was through an SPV. And then there was one company where the minimum was ten thousand dollars, so I had to put in ten thousand、um, dollars, which to me at that time felt like a lot. But actually, that ended up being like the biggest markup in the entire portfolio, and I followed on into another round with another five k. So,、um, so yeah, I mean, I tried to be consistent, but、um, there were a couple of things where like I had to make a change.、Um, but it ended up working out on both ends, and、um, yeah. But for me, as, as an angel, it was more about like getting enough shots on goal, getting enough learnings,、um, and also designing a portfolio. A, I went in with a mentality that I might lose all this capital, so don't invest more than you、um, can afford. And for me, that was a lot of money to like invest 5k in 30 companies. But I had always thought about doing an MBA. It was kind of like letting go of that,、um, like that goal. And I was like, you know what? Instead of spending money on grad school, I'm going to spend money on this as my like learning opportunity, my networking opportunity. And so that's how I justified it to myself and、um, kind of created that pool of capital. And、um, yeah, I. Oh, and then the portfolio construction kind of came later. Like as I started thinking about a fund, it was like, do I stick with that ten per year over three years because that's a very comfortable speed for me, or do I like ratchet it up and try to get more shots on goal and go go more the spray and pray、uh, like direction, which can be like a hundred plus.、Um, because I think if you're doing the spray and pray method, it's like you want to get a lot of checks into as many companies as possible because there's this power law, and it's like once you cross the fifty mark. You're getting there, but like you might actually want to invest in like a hundred companies,、um, and so、um, that was like one strategy that I considered.、Um, but you have to follow on. Like if you just write tiny checks into that many companies, then if one of them wins, it's it might not be big enough as a win to buy back all the other ninety nine, or you know maybe there's like eighty that didn't do well or something like,、um, and there's one that's like a grand slam, and then a bunch of others that were like base hits or something.、Um, So you're really reliant on these outliers to like drive the entire portfolio, and I didn't want to.、Um, for me, like I didn't want to like try to figure out follow on like right out of the gate too,、um, because I knew I was pretty good at investing at, at pre-seed because I had had like four out of that first thirty companies, I had thirteen markups.、Um, four of them still today are like driving the bulk of the returns or not returns, I should say markup. There's like a six point eight markup on that entire portfolio. Driven by those four companies largely, and they have markups of like 10x to 36x. And so、um, I was like, if I can just replicate what I did as an angel,、um, I'll be good. And so I didn't want to massively like change my portfolio construction. So I stuck with about 30, 30ish companies over three years for、um, fund one. 
And um, yeah, and then I think um, high conviction, there's a few people that will do like invest in five companies or 10 companies, but that is extremely risky because you're really, even with a fund of like 30, like you're dependent on like one or a few, like really being huge winners. Um, and so the smaller that number gets, it's like you have really less shots on goal. So, um, so yeah, I chose something like in the conviction range, but like not so small that, that I'm like putting my LPs at more risk to me than I feel comfortable with. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's really interesting. You mentioned like, um, you know, there are four companies that's driving like 10 to 36 X returns for your best portfolio. Like, do you feel like they come from the company that you have to hunt down or like, do they come from like a referral slash or cold DM or I guess like, how do you feel like is it, does these four companies share any common pattern? Yeah. So, um, I would say two out of the four, um, do have a common pattern, which was, um, a, they were like executing in a legacy industry, which was like a huge antiquated industry. Um, they kind of came out of left field and I knew about them because of referrals or because of like my personal network. Um, but I actually got to see those deals before almost anybody else. So one of them um, was a stealth logistics company. They're still in stealth, even though they're like really crushing it right now. Um, but basically one of our angel members um, had um, like, I had angel invested with her for a couple of years and I knew that she was super business savvy. She was like ex Flexport, ex Uber. She um, actually was at Flexport when she was an angel investor in our community. And then she came to me as like one of the leads of that community. And she's like, hey, I'm thinking about launching a company in logistics. Like I'm seeing this space that nobody's working on and and nobody's addressing. Um, And I knew how well she knew that industry because of her experience. And she had really strong like sales experience too, which is amazing as a superpower, uh, as a a founder that's going to have to go through founder-led sales. Um, And so I basically like, um, I was like, I think you should do this. I went through like early straw man versions of her deck with her, helped her improve it. And I told her I wanted to be first check in. Um, so I wrote a check into that uh, round. And then like, basically she ended up raising a super strong pre-seed round and then had like a lot of competition at seed probably six months after that. She, I think had like eight term sheets. Um, and so it was awesome to be like, oh, I was an early committer um, to that company. And then there was another one too, where it was like through my personal like friend and operator network. Um, I knew uh, Alex Alvarado um, through friends and he had been at two digital health uh, startups um, and he had been with them as an early product manager through like an exit um, and getting acquired. And so I knew he had like seen how this happens and how these companies grow from the inside and being in a role like product, you see all the different pieces that need to come together to achieve those milestones along the way. And you also see how the company and the executive team is growing um, from the inside out. And um, I also happen to know an engineer that he used to work with at one of those jobs who thought highly of him. And I was like, that's also kind of rare, like um, engineers, you know, being, you know, thinking highly of their product managers that they work with and actually wanting to like work on projects with them outside of work. And so there were just enough like indicators there. Um, And he reached out to me and he was like, hey, I know you're running the Council Angels. I'm just thinking about um, like starting a company and I would just love to pick your brain on like the venture landscape. So I didn't even know what he was working on. We hopped on a call, we went through his deck. Um, He was working on mental health for teens and hoping to sell into schools. And I just felt like his um, resilience having gone through like those journeys in the past um, and then his mission, like um, being like a huge mission that was personal to him 
Um, and then like his vision for how big the company could be was extremely strong. And um, I felt like I had a, um, I felt like I knew what he was capable of just like seeing some things from him in the past. And so um, I was also an early check in there and brought it through the council angels. And I think we had a few other people participate um, in that pre-seed round. And then right after that, he got into YC um, and then he came out of the program. And I think like SoftBank ended up um, investing in a couple of others, like maybe Maven Ventures and then Lightspeed led a series A and then um, Union Square Ventures and Lux um, participated in series B. So that one was another like crazy one where to, to me, like those are the two that I wanted to copy those learnings for like fun too. I want to focus on proven operators, um, antiquated spaces that need tons of help that we all rely on. Um, and just like people that have already a lot of resilience going into the job, which gets back to like the proven operator point. So, yeah. Um, I have like so many questions there and I like, okay, so I have like four sub questions after you mentioned these two examples. One is like, I see a common pattern of like people investing in unsexy industry slash like the old industry that are leveraging new technology. What are some lessons there? Because I feel like some in some category, they're just like, it's just extremely hard to re-innovate. For example, the real estate industry, you know, like you talk about we work in your article, we'll get into that later. And I wonder, I feel like overall, like some industry just like unable to re-innovate or like it's hard, it's fragmented. It's like hard to penetrate, all that kind of stuff. So I, I wonder like, and, but on the other hand, like, you know, I see like other people, there's like a lot of fun started backing the unsexy industry thing. I wonder what are things that are, what are some factors that people should consider to, before they invest in that category of things? And then the other part is about like, how do you do due diligence? I know that like, you know, for example, your friends recommended like an operator or like uh, people from your community recommend you a really great operator. But sometimes like, like, you know, it, it doesn't equivalent of like you working with them the um so when i was like so eric from hustle fun were on like a couple days ago and then when i was doing his like research i hear about like their pitch was like you know at the beginning they saw someone who have the perfect resume from google princeton all that kind of stuff but like they just unable to like work like unable to hustle to a degree so like how do you do due diligence on these founders besides they're like you know they have great word, word of mouth reputation about being a great operator <laughs> and yep we're okay but and and yeah. then i wonder because we live in silicon valley i kind of feel like i when i put tiny check into any company like when i'm like thinking about angel investment i think about the highly technical mode of phds and like, but they are typically lack of like operating experience because they are PhD and like, and like they're typically terrible at sales. Um, I wonder what are things that a founder could easily learn and what are things that they cannot learn? And okay, That's so I will just leave it there. I will save the, the, the other question later. I don't want to like overwhelm you. No, it's um, great. I, I'm taking notes so I can go through all of them. Um, so I, so lessons in antiquated industries, we can definitely get into more later as we talk about like software's third act, the article I put out on Tuesday. Um, but there's a ton of lessons learned in that industry. Like number one is don't try to like replace a deeply entrenched system right out of the gate. Like uh, manufacturers and healthcare systems both have like deeply entrenched like systems that are keeping track of all this data. And it took a long time for those to even get integrated and they get updated like maybe every 10 years and it's like even the update is like another 10 years behind. Um, so at some point somebody will will replace those like or maybe they will need to be but 
Um, trying to like boil the whole ocean, like right out of the gate as a pre-seed startup is gonna be really tough. So my advice to founders in those areas would be like find ways to connect with those deeply entrenched systems and make the life and work of the operator using them a lot easier and more efficient. And also be able to show whoever's making the purchaser purchasing decision that you can make like hard, there will be hard ROI associated with using your product. Like people in these industries are not, they have way too much going on. Um, they're running highly technical, highly operational, um, or I guess that's like double words, but like a highly technical operation and complex operation. So they're not going to just use a new tech tool just to like be using the next new cool thing. Um, they will only use it if it's going to save them time and money and it needs to be measurable. Um, other thing is like meet customer where they're at. So some, like if you design an app for somebody that's like behind the desktop all day, or you design a desktop um, like system for somebody that's like on an assembly line all day and never at their desk, like those sort of things are not gonna work. You can't just take a general SaaS solution that's worked for all these other industries and hope that it's gonna work and get the same adoption in these industries where people have very specific day-to-days that are like tied to real world operations. Um, and they look different in every industry from construction, being on job sites, manufacturing, being on the line, hospitals being inside of like a surgery room or meeting with patients. Um, so you really have to like have a lot of understanding. And for me, like I wouldn't, I if you're thinking about building something, something in these industries, I honestly wouldn't do it unless you have a unique insight and in these industries and you've actually been on the inside. It doesn't mean that you had to spend 10 years as a doctor before launching a healthcare company, but maybe you were in residency and you started to see like all the inefficiencies and um, where you could actually make a difference and where things are actually going quite well. Um, so you just, I think just making sure that you have some experience that makes you uniquely qualified to execute in the industry you're building for. Um, and then also like the WeWork example you brought up, um, don't try to replace a core operation. Um, like it kind of gets back to the like deeply entrenched systems, but um, I, a lot of these industries have like an incredible amount of like financial and technical uh, and technological, like, and even scientific, um, like, factors to them. And so it's not, like, we think of technology, if you're in Silicon Valley, when you think of technology, you think of, like, software or, like, consumer electronics. Um, but there's a lot more technology in these industries that is, like, state-of-the-art. Um, and so don't underestimate that or try to just, like, replace it overnight and be like, we have something better. We're going to kind of disrupt this whole thing with software and technology. A, not going to go well in your sales pitch. Um, B, like there's a lot that has been like developed for decades in these industries um, and they don't want to lose that. So anyways, those are like my three like lessons learned um, that I think about and uh, when I'm like looking for founders um, and then things to consider as if you're an investor investing in these spaces. I always ask myself, who are the gatekeepers? Because when you have like an age old industry, many of them regulated or complex. Um, there's almost always someone that's like kind of benefiting from something staying the same way for a long time. Um, it could be the government, it could be like brokers, um, you know, that get transaction fees from everybody not being able to see everything on the same side of the marketplace. It could be like suppliers. They don't really want everybody else to know their pricing because that they love to be able to negotiate things on the fly and give everybody a different price. So there's like a lot of these dynamics. And I would say if you're investing in one of these verticals for the first time, make sure you talk to at least one, if not a few experts in the space about like how it works um, and lean on the founder you're investing in too, but like also double check the things they're saying and make sure they're not oversimplifying something like that, that is actually going to be a huge challenge. Um, and with gatekeepers specifically, um, I always look at like, 
I, it's a red flag to me when a founder's like, oh, they need to be disrupted anyways. This is just going to happen one day anyways. So we're just going to go for it. That's like showing me they haven't fully thought through, like if they're a underestimating the risk of like deeply entrenched uh, processes and, and people and systems that can keep outsiders out. Um, and, uh, and it just tells me they're not ready. So um, I would instead like to see something like, here's how we actually provide value to these players in the ecosystem and get them on board with what we're building. Um, so it doesn't feel like a hostile takeover. Um, and then over time, who knows what's going to happen, but like going in with that mentality, I'm just going to replace everybody in this industry and like throw everything on the wall. Like, it's just not going to work. I've seen companies try to do that before and it's, it doesn't go well. And then, um, the other thing is like, who's the cast of characters in this industry too, it, which is kind of like gatekeepers are one. Um, but like I mentioned it earlier, but healthcare alone, like when I first started investing in healthcare, um, I didn't invest in like the first, you know, even like. 30 deals that I saw in the space because mm -hmm. I just wanted to understand like what is um, who are the people that matter what are the different types of go-to-market strategies what are the different types of health tech companies almost like you want to have a market map in your head um, of how this industry works and it's going to be more memorable if you have your personal research versus just like looking at a market map that somebody's developed online um, because you get to talk to people you get to understand how it works um, and for me, you know, I realized like payers are always, there's payers, providers, patients, and um, employers. And sometimes employers are involved, sometimes they're not. But I've seen a lot of healthcare companies start with like a B2C model, hoping they can get consumers on board to pay some monthly fee for something. And then it's like, that's not accessible to everyone. And so you have to get the payers on board. And then in order to really scale, a lot of times um, you have to get employers on board. And so um, I've seen so many like pivots from B2C to like B2B2C to finally B2B. And so like, that's just an example of like something you learn over time out of, after seeing a ton of deals and even investing in a couple and seeing how it goes. Um, and then um, I also try to understand like who are the established incumbents in the space um, and who are the emerging startups. So like if you're trying to create a CRM for, um, you know, a particular industry to like manage their sales process, like okay, there's Salesforce and there's like some other big ones that would be hard to replace. But then there's also probably like 10 other startups popping out of YC and other places that are trying to do the same thing. Um, so who are those? And the emerging ones are actually the hardest to find and keep a pulse on because they're not always out there. They don't always have websites yet. Some are in stealth. And so that's where having co-investors that you lean on and have conversations with from time to time about just, hey, what are you seeing? And like, even my angel investing community, we see a lot and we can talk about a lot. And even the deals we're not sharing with each other, we still have conversations about other deals we're seeing outside of the community too. So um, that's helpful. Um, and then how to diligence. Um, I, I mentioned like talking to other GPs is really helpful. I don't do that on every deal, but every now and then if it's like in a space where it's like, you know what, this one, um, you know, I invest in logistics, but this one's a little more complicated. It's like managing their billing and like payments process let me talk to somebody who would be like a customer on that side. Um, or let me talk to another GP that uniquely focuses on this. Um, and then another thing you can do is like, try to see their speed of execution. So this was hard to do in 2021 when everybody had a round closing in like two weeks. But now it's like, you can have a first call with a founder, um, meet with them the next week and see what's happened, both from like a building perspective and a fundraising perspective. Um, and if, and, you know, it might be like a relationship you build over like a month and um, you can really see like what happens in that period of time. If things feel like you, they're exactly the same as they were a month ago, they might not be moving fast enough as a team. Um, and then what things can you learn and what can you not learn? 
Um, man, that's hard. I think sales is probably the hardest thing to learn. And I would say that even from my own personal experience, because for most of my operating career, I never had to do sales. And then I managed a sales team at Atmos as because I managed multiple functions. And I just realized like, wow, this is not just about finding people that are good at talking to people, which is what we all think of when we think of great salespeople. <laughs> they also have to be very process oriented. And sometimes those two factors are at, at odds with each, each other. Like they need to be organized. They need to be tracking their prospects, like recording everything in the background. And then also not just opening up conversations with people and getting them talking, but being able to guide the conversation to a decision. So it's very much like an art and a science at the same time. Um, so like that is very hard for anybody to learn. I've had to learn a little bit of it myself on the fundraising side. Um, and so I think it's a super skill if somebody already knows how to go do sales going into the job, but I don't think it's a deal breaker if they've never done it. Because the nice thing is if you're a, an, a founder that is rising up out of like either the tech industry, but you grew up in like a, um, or we're interfacing with a legacy industry, or you're coming out from like a legacy industry and you're bolstering yourself with tech talent around you. Um, the nice thing about founders with those unique insights in those sort of antiquated industries is that they really know how to speak their customer's language. So even if they're not incredible at sales, they might be able to learn a lot of tips and tricks along the way. And their excitement and like empathy for the customer is going to go a long way. So I've definitely seen a few people in our portfolio where it's like sales was not their strong suit, but like, and maybe even like fundraising can be tough for them sometimes, but like when they're with customers, they're actually closing deals really fast. And, the, and then the data starts to show because they can actually um, get customers excited about what they're building because they're just so passionate about it. So, yeah. Mm. Do you focus on like, for example, I want to be mindful of time. Okay, this will be yeah. my last question. I'm so sorry. By the way, everyone should check out like Ember's new article, Software Third Act. Um, anyway, uh, going back to this, um, I wonder when you're when you mentioned about like, you know, as a okay, let's just put it this way. As a as a solo GP, as a fund manager, what do you think is one critical skill for you to constantly learn? Wow. Um, I would say mindset management. So I'll just tell you why. It's because like as a solo GP, you have to wear so many hats and it honestly doesn't even make physical sense. Like I think even for like people who have um, co-GPs, it's a lot of work. Um, and so like even, even like the three categories of like investing, fundraising and back office all have just like sprawling work streams and stuff. Um, and then even when you hire people to start helping you with these things, then like managing people is another pillar that you're dealing with. And so um, I think for any CEO or GP, um, I think like managing your own mindset is really important because there is just so much um, going on. You have to be like really, A, you have to prioritize, you have to build time blocks into your calendar to do focused work because otherwise you'll just get sucked into like whatever the issue of the moment is in all these categories. And there'll be like 15 of them and you're not focused on anything. Um, and so you need to have focus time. And then you also do need to just build in like the time to do the unsexy work because it has to be done. You can't not file your taxes on time or not deal with some fund admin like uh, fire. And so um, so I think just like managing your mindset through all that and not getting stressed out and realizing this is part of the process, one step at a time. The big thing that is my number one priority is still moving forward. I'm just gonna have to take a little bit of time to like work on this other little thing on the side um, and just like not getting overwhelmed, I think just comes with time. So yeah. Amazing. On that note, thank you so much, Amber, for coming on the show today. Where can people find you? So I'm on Twitter at Amber Illig. It's A-M-B-E-R-I-L-L-I-G. You can also follow the council cap 
on Twitter and I'm also on LinkedIn, um, just Amber Illig. So would love to hear from any of you and um, hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you so much for having me, Grace. This was awesome. And I love how much research you do. So it's great. Oh my God. Thank you so much, Amber. Appreciate you. Okay. So let me just quickly end the stream.